small things can lead to big things. You know, big things can happen in small places. Episode 90. This is The Business of Architecture. If you're paralyzed by a voice in your head, it's the standing still that should be scaring you instead. Go on and do it anyway. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Welcome to the Business of Architecture podcast, helping architects conquer the world. And here's your host, Enoch Sears. Hello, Architect Nation. I'm Enoch Bartlett Sears, and this is the show where we sit down and we talk with successful architects, designers, and consultants about what they don't teach us in school, how to run a profitable design practice. Generous support for today's show is provided by BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is a project and office management software built specifically for architects, which is, I think, one thing that makes it cool. ArchiOffice is, you know, it's actually more affordable than you think. They have a low monthly rate that won't break the bank even for sole practitioners. And I found out last month that ArchiOffice is now offering up to two seats free of the software for startup firms. So that's going to help those of you who have just started your firms. If you've been in business for uh, less than 24 months, you can have two complimentary seats to the ArchiOffice software. You can go check that out at ArchiOffice.com. Now, today's guest is architect Randy M. Sovich, AIA. Randy runs the firm R.M. Sovich Architecture based out of Baltimore, Maryland. His firm has received numerous awards for their design work. He co-authored the book Creating Home, an an Assisted Living Design Manual. He's also the founder and co-editor of Texture Archazine. In today's episode, you'll discover the three PowerPoint slides Randy saw during a marketing presentation early in his career and why these three marketing lessons have stuck with him through the years. We talk about the difference between having a business and a practice. We talk about pricing your services as a sole practitioner and what you need to take into account when you do that. Also, we touch on the simple no-fail strategy to build your network quickly and effectively, something that Randy used in the early years of his career to build his practice quickly. Now, on with today's show with Randy M. Sovich, principal of R.M. Sovich Architecture. Okay, we ready to start? Let's do it. So I figured okay. first, first would just give us a, an interview, kind of uh, just an overview of your firm. Tell us a little bit about your backstory, you know, who you are, where you came from, and get people to kind of know who you are. Give us a little bit of context there. So, um, Randy, welcome to the business of architecture. Thanks, Enoch. Um, I I, um, I grew up in a small town um, in western Pennsylvania, and uh, went to school in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. And I uh, my first job was here in Baltimore. I um, I worked for three firms in Baltimore and and Pennsylvania in before I started my own business. I I took um, I think they were all first of all they were all very well managed businesses. They were all, all either were or have become national leaders in, in their area of expertise. And I think I took something from each of those places when I went out on my own. Uh, and for example, um, the one firm, uh, the first firm I worked for was RTKL. And they had, um, we, had, we had associates meetings there. And what we would do is bring people in because it was a departmentalized kind of a firm. So we'd bring, bring people in and one of the people we brought into the associates presentations was the head of marketing. Um, he, he showed, um, three slides in his whole presentation on the marketing of the, of the firm, three slides. And he had a very powerful message. I could still remember 20 years later 
what those three slides were and what the message was for each one. So it was very important, you know, to, as a message in your presenting yourself, what is your point and how do you get it across as simply and powerfully? Well, um, that, that's a cliffhanger, Randy. So what were the three slides and what, <laughs> what were, were the, the points? Slides? Yeah. I knew you were going to ask. Okay, the first slide is probably, now some of these are going to seem, this was a, a number of years ago, but some of these are going to seem a little dated, but here's the first slide was a picture of a small garage, shingle style garage with a green garage door and a gravel driveway. And he said two men started their business in this garage. And when business was good, the car was in the driveway. When business was bad, the, uh, the car was in the garage. You can basically tell. He said, if you were the architect, you'd live down the street from these guys, and you noticed that they had some problems with their roof. It would have been a good idea to help them out with that because Hewlett and Packard were the two men that started that business there. So small things can lead to big things. You know, Big things can happen in small places. That was slide number one. Slide number two was a picture of a whaling. It was an etching of whaling. Now, whaling's a little out, you know, like people, I don't know if I'd show a whaling image these days because people will get all up in arms. But, you know, you have this boat, it's rocking in the water, there's a whale, you can see the mothership in the background, there's a guy in the front and he's got his spear, there's somebody who's holding a tiller, there's somebody with the net, right? And he said, this is what marketing is all about. One person doesn't do it. You got somebody who's got to spot the target. You got the mothership that's going to be doing all the main communications, right? Then you've got to be able to get out there into the wild, and you've got somebody who's going to have to steer your ship, and you know, all the different parts. It's a team. So that was basically the thrust of that one. And he went on, but it was a teamwork. You know, it's teamwork. It's not a one person thing. It doesn't happen quickly, and the bigger the prize, the more team, the more effort is involved with it. And then the third one was just a pie chart, it was a circle. And it had one little wedge in it. It's kind of like Pac-Man, only turned this way. And the little one said 5%. And he said, 5% is our new clients. 95% of our work comes from existing clients and referrals. So he basically, you okay there? Okay. Um, he said, you, our job as the employees were to keep that 95% coming back. Three very powerful images, right? Brilliant. You can visualize them, you'll yeah. remember them. Focus. That, that was what marketing was all about. So, and, and that's why that firm became, they went from uh, 35 people to 1,100 people. Yeah, and where was RTKL uh, headquartered back when you were working with their firm? In Baltimore. <clears throat> In Baltimore, so that makes sense. Yeah. You were there on the ground floor. Yeah, they, they, uh, they had about 175 people, I think, and then now they've grown to 1,100. So, wow. Yeah. Randy, so, tell, tell me a little bit about, let's go back to your time at Carnegie Mellon. Sure. Tell me a little bit about what, your, what it was like to study there and what was the school characterized at that point in time and how that shaped the direction you took in architecture. Okay. Um, well, there was, um, when I went there, there was a faculty member who did uh, advocacy planning. And uh, you probably haven't heard of that phrase, but it's, it's just another word for social enterprise in a way. Advocacy planning was after the 60s. Um, there was a lot of, lot of urban renewal. Lots of buildings were being torn down all over the country in the late 60s, early 70s. And so architects started to work like, uh, like lawyers do. And they, um, they went out and they, um, they went out and they, and they represented community associations and community groups and they helped communities organize. So, you know, so the developers, the cities and the develop, large developers wanted to tear down blocks of building and, um, and, and put up some, you know, some mega structures, other structures 
And so this was how does the community, people live in the community, have a voice? So that was one thing that was very interesting to me. That was something that was very, you know, kind of had an effect on me when I came out. I ended up working for larger firms. Um, and then the 80s were a different, you know, a different animal. When I got out of school, it was the 80s. So, so did uh, that, was, was that sort of participatory design? Uh, yeah, it was before participatory design. <laughs> but I was at the end of that. Yeah. yeah, I really came in at the end of that. Okay. So that influenced so, your thinking. So, but it was advocate, advocating architects who advocate for communities, advocate for nonprofits, advocate for you know the, the people who aren't really the power people. Yep, yep. And in a way, that's really come back with social enterprise architecture. The architecture firms you see that all over now, and it hasn't. You know, there's neighborhood design centers. I don't know if you have those in California, but there's a number of those around here in the East Coast. Neighbor, we call the Neighborhood Design Center, and they provide services for the community. Those all grew out of that, out of that movement, out of ad, advocating for the neighbors, for the community. Um, the, uh, you know, the the program at Carnegie Mellon was, I think it was a very good one. I, I enjoyed it. I liked being there. I had a lot of good friends there. Um, uh, I don't know what else to say about that. I, mean, I, I still keep in touch with people there. Excellent. And then how did you get your first position? Um, you know, that was a funny story because um, I was fig figuring that I would probably be in a smaller business, an advocacy kind of firm or working, you know, somehow thinking about going out. And I was working at my desk and uh, one of the faculty came around and said that there was going to be a uh, presentation by this architect from Baltimore. And so I went to the presentation and he showed, you know, steel and glass high rises and commercial centers and retail buildings and hospitals, big, big, big projects. And so I thought it was very, very impressive, but, um, you know, that's nice. And then I went back to my desk and I was working and I looked around the studio and everybody was grabbing their work off their desk and getting in line to go and interview. Um, so I went, um, because everybody else was. So I went and said, well, I might as well go interview. And one of my, the guy next to me said, well, you know, at least you get a chance to practice interviewing, right? You know, we were seniors and, you know, this was the end of the end of the run, right, last semester. So I went and I interviewed and I was, I think, the only one, it was two of us, actually two of us that were invited to Baltimore and then offered jobs. So uh, what I didn't know is that they were hiring people like crazy here at the time. I mean, they were hiring a lot of people and the firm was in a big growth spurt, even though the economy was slow in Pittsburgh. So, what, what do you think? Uh, what do you think caused your application to, or your interview to be, you know, stand out above your peers? You, can you remember that? You know, it's so different than what students do today and what uh, young architects are doing today. Because I mean, I literally only showed him the work that was on my desk. It was just hand sketches, and I think it was because I could draw. You know, I could draw by hand, mm. and um, you know, that was. Um, I, I think that's still important because people. Um, if you could sit and draw something by hand and, you know, with someone and sketch something out, people respect that. That's they, they think it's more than it is. I mean, I know that it's a skill and it's learned. And, um, you know, a lot of people uh, who are architects draw, but when you just draw with someone, I had a client who was a, um, a neurosurgeon and I would draw upside down for him, you know, sitting across the table. And he was just fascinated by that. And I was like, well, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon to do this. You know, you just have to, you know, just picture it upside down. That's all. <laughs> so. And do you find in your interactions with younger architects that that's a dying skill? I mean, there's that critique out there. I think people are saying it, but I see a lot of people drawing. I just think that what happens is when they go into a firm that they're not asked to draw very much. 
you know, they're at, you know, I hear on, um, you know, other podcasts, I mean, I'll put a plug for Arca Speak, but I listen to Arca Speak sometimes. And there's a lot of talk of young architects talk a lot about CAD software. And, um, you know, we didn't talk about number two pencils or, you know, Eberhard erasers or something, you know. So there's all this product kind of mindset with young architects. And I think, you know, drawing and um, if, if you're using software, understanding that whatever software you're using, in a few years, you'll be using something different. Something better is going to come along. So don't get so hung up on the software. Learn how to use it. It's a tool and move on and keep thinking about ideas. because That's what's going to distinguish you. Hey, Architect Nation, it is great to have you listening in today. I want to remind you that this episode of Business of Architecture is sponsored by BQE Software, the developers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice has been powering architecture firms for over 10 years and helping them to be more productive and profitable, which empowers architects to do what you like to do and what you got in this business for in the first place. Create great architecture and spaces. Go check it out at ArchiOffice.com. Now back to our show. So take us. So you, your first firm was that RTKL. It was RTKL, <laughs> and, then and then I you had. You said you worked for three firms total. I worked for three during that time period. I worked for a firm, um, Air Saint Gross. Um, they do a lot of college and university work. Um, though they were still just when I started there, they were just they hadn't really established the the, the reputation that they have now. That that happened after I left. Um, they've they've really become kind of a leading a leading firm in uh, college and university design around the country, um, and um, and we work with uh, so we work with a lot of institutions there, a lot of institutional work, high high end kind of projects, uh, long term kind of projects, and I learned a lot about detailing buildings mm-hmm. and developing designs there, and then I worked for a firm in uh, Pennsylvania called Reese Lauer Patrick and Scott, and uh, before I. When I left there, St. Gross, I was thinking of going on my own, but I really didn't know what I was good. Leaving your own on your own and going out and trying to grab a university project is very challenging. So, um, how many I, how many years was that when you got to that point where you decided that I wanted to go on my own? I, when I went on my own, uh, I was uh, thirty five. So, so you had about 10, 12 years of practice behind you. About twelve years of practice, right? So, so I um. I, I went to this firm, Reese Lauer, Patrick and Scott. They were uh, they do private K through twelve and senior senior housing, senior living design for aging work. And working there, I realized that there was a market for that around the country, and that that's something I could do. It kind of fit the idea of social enterprise because it was design for aging is was um, and maybe still is is under considered by architects. Um, I think it's become more. Interesting. The AI has a design for aging forum, and there's a lot more now. But 20 years ago, when I started the office, uh, I remembered seeing a, a, a PA award issue. Remember Progressive Architecture magazine that used to be out? They do these uh, unbuilt projects, and there was a design for a senior housing project. And what caught my eye was that the jurors said that they didn't need to hold this project to the same standard uh, because of what it was. Hmm. In other words, because it was senior housing, the expectations were lower for it in some way. And that struck me because why should you have any lower expectations about design for any kind of a, any building type? I mean, really. Um, um, so, so that was that was when I opened the business. The idea was to specialize, um, and in private education K through twelve and design for aging. And this is our twenty first year. Interesting. So you you went into it. A lot of architects go into it um, as generalists. So at that early stage, you. 
Uh, did you understand the importance of having a specialization or was it just something that you thought it suited you well? Um, as I thought about this for a while, I talked to people, I talked about joining someone as a partner, you know, two, two, two of us started opening business together, several different people. And we met with a, over at the time I met with a, um, uh, a business lawyer and I sat down with him for lunch. I'll buy you lunch. Can you give me some ideas of what I need to look out for? And he was really good at helping businesses go out of business. He was a bankruptcy lawyer and he was perfect because where, you know, where do businesses fail, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, what he asked was, you know, he, we went through all the things and he said, so where's your client going to be? And I said, well, my clients are going to be, before I did the design for aging, you know, uh, experience, he said, uh, where's your, where, 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 who are going to be your clients? And I said, well, I think I, I'd be doing this. And he said, well, if you're going to open a business, you need a real client like right away. So where's it going to come from? And, um, and so that was always in my head. Well, where will they be? How will they, they develop? And, um, when I hung up my shingle, I didn't really have any projects specifically. Um, uh, I just I had been with these three businesses. They were all consolidated, you know, established businesses. They all already had it. I wanted to have my name on the door. It didn't have to be the first name, but I wanted to be on the door. You know, a lot of practices um, have, um, you know, like law firms and small businesses. They have, uh, you know, unidentified with a person. That's what the vision I had for. I wanted to be. I wanted to be a business that people would come to me, not just come to a brand or the, you know, a, a corporate entity. So can we can we dig into that a little bit? Yeah, Randy? sure. Because I know that a lot of uh, it seems like something that probably a lot of architects can identify with is working for other firms for a long time, and then there comes a point where. It's almost like a decision time. Like, am I going to go out on my own? Am I going to do something different? Or maybe there's some seeds of discontent that happen there. You know, describe to me what that was like in terms of wanting your name on the door. Sort of what was behind that psychologically? I, th I think it was um, wanting control. You know, I think a lot of architects want to have control of what they're doing. And uh, I worked for 12, more than a little more than 12 years. Um, um, as an employee, a good good soldier, and and uh, you know, and so ultimately, uh, I wanted to be able to say, well, these are who my clients will be, and this is what I'll, you know, this is the kind of work that I'll do, and be able to shape it. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is um, well, let me go back. Is one thing that um, because I was reading a lot about it, I think I might have sent you some information about this. One of our early conversations: Do you want to be a business or do you want to be a practice? And so that was the other part of it is how do I want to be structured when I open my, my practice or my business? And, um, and so what's the difference between a business and a practice? And, and the, the definition that I got at the time and actually from a seminar at the AIA uh, for young architects was that a business uh, is going to make decisions based on financial profit, financial benefit, and that a practice is going to make decisions based on other things, almost anything else in your practice. So is it fame? Is it lifestyle? Is it, you know, um, to do a certain kind of thing? Is it because I want to teach and do this on the side? You know what I mean? Whatever those are, those would be practices versus businesses. And and it seemed like a, at the time that I opened, the, opened my practice uh, that a lot of firms would grow from being practices to businesses. Uh, a comment that I have now is I've been watching this uh, Architect 50 magazine, um, the top 50 architecture firms. Have you been seeing those every year? And yeah. they have a criteria with uh, with this category. Used to be that they would just pick the largest firms, right? The top firms were always the ones that had the most work, the most income, the most people. They would either be most work, most projects, most you know something. It was always 
most. Now, you know, they look at how much pro bono work do you do? Do you do research? How much do you give back? So those are not business uh, categories. Those are all practice categories. So now you're seeing these big, really corporate firms, business firms, and I don't say that in a negative way in any way, but now they're, they're accumulating these things not just because of business reasons, because they want to, they want to be, they want to be achievers, and so they want to hit this this uh, category. So I think it's the AI, what the AIA and Architecture Magazine are doing with that is very good. It's it's good for the profession having people give back, and uh, as long as they're actually doing it, you know, I don't know how they follow up. So when you went into it, you decided you wanted to be a practice. I want to be a practice. And how did that affect the way that you implemented your business decisions? Um, I. Uh, Initially, I tried to focus on what I did the best, and so initially what I would do is, if it was a small project, I would do soup to nuts, uh, but I got some bigger projects, and so I would associate with other firms uh, and let them do do the things that they needed to do. In other words, let them hire people, or they had people on staff, they would do production for me. So the, the one thing that was funny was that almost immediately after I let people know that I was hanging out my shingle and I was on my own, I got work that was in totally outside of the boundaries of where I said this is my focus. Mm. So, two houses, um, ski resorts in Colorado, um, you know, uh, uh, um, a healthcare, a, a student uh, after-school program, you know, just all these kind of things that didn't really fit into those things. So, but as a practice, I could take those on because they, you know, that they were the, my my decisions about my business, my practice. Really based on what is, what is my interest, not is what is the bottom line. Um, after about five years, I um, I moved the business, the practice, the whatever, into a space. I rented out space and moved in and decided I was going to grow and do more of this on my own um, and start to hire people because I wanted to be able to do a better job. I think the economy was picking up, uh, and um, you know there's ups and downs. And so people weren't as weren't as interested in doing production for me as they were doing their own projects. So that's one thing that happens when you farm out work. If you don't give them a, the other firm a major role, then you're not their priority, unless that's all they do. Unless all they do is production. So you have to really look at well, who is doing this other stuff for you? Yeah, um, and when I always like that transition from going from an employee to you know to a sole proprietor. Uh, let's talk about that just for a second. Some of the details. You you gave your notice at your employer. You said, "Hey guys, I gave I'm my notice at my employer." Right, and and, how, and uh, how involved was the startup process of your new firm? Was it like I'm going to go start it, or were you meeting with lawyers, establishing a corporation? You know, getting an accountant. It was a little different than that because I I gave my notice, and um, the firm I was working for said, uh, "Work from work from home. Stay with us." They gave you the home. option. Because I had, um, yeah, I had young children, and um, and I needed to be, you know, needed to be around, needed to be around, and I was uh, I was away from the office a lot. And the um, the firm I worked for, the last firm I worked for, was in Pennsylvania, and, um, and so it was a little bit of a hike. It was a longer commute. And it was a great firm, as I said, very well run firm, great people there. But so they gave me this option to work from home. So I worked from home for a year, and you know, it was really very nice. Um, and I liked it. So at the end of the year, they said, we really want you to come back. And I said, I really like being on my own. So <laughs> I think we, we mutually, you know, it was mutual. Um, and as I, uh, you know, um, 
once you get that ability to be able to kind of manage your day and not have to kind of show up and not have to spend the time commuting, you know, to, to work, it's pretty nice, you know, be able to just walk to work or go to work, um, you know, having an office in your house. There's a lot of nice, nice things about that. And so, so as soon as I let people know that I was leaving and I was on my own, that's when things started to happen. So I, mm. I, um, I did a, a plastic surgeon's office that was a pretty high, high detailed project. Was that and, the uh, first product? Do you remember that first product that came in that where you said, okay, this is going to work? Um, I, I think uh, it was kind of like a whole bunch of things came in, a bunch of things. And I just had a feeling it was going to work. Plus, when I started, um, I did talk to the lawyers, but I didn't have a lot um, – I didn't spend a lot on it at the time. I mean I was probably the bad example. Uh, maybe like the typical example, but the bad example, uh, I was more focused on doing things. Yep. Uh, but then as the work came in, I started to set up things. Now, having worked for three really well-managed businesses was really, uh, I, you know, that, that shaped a lot of it because when I was asked to put a proposal together, I didn't go, well, how much do I want to make? Or, you know, I had forms from all these organizations that I I had already set into my, you know, as soon as I was on my own, I started setting those forms up. One thing I probably should say is, you know, 20 years ago, being a designer, being, you know, associate, associate level, you know, kind of an architect, when 20 years ago, computers weren't at the same role, every firm I worked in said, you won't be using a computer. You're not a computer guy. Mm. You, you draw, you'll be and I was thinking, I'm too young not to use a computer. <laughs> you know, computers are everything now. And I remember one, the one firm I said, I'd really like to learn how to use um, uh, Lotus. You know, I think I could, I could think of a lot of things to do with spreadsheets. And my boss said, why would you do that? Like, what would you, you, what would you even do with, what, you know, a, a spreadsheet? And, I mean, think about how much you use a spreadsheet, you know, you know I mean? But so the, the times have just changed. So the first thing I did was I went out and got a computer and I uh, – I did things that I could do things much more quickly being a one person firm initially than a bigger firm can do. So I thought everybody in the office who's a project manager should have a notebook and a, and a, uh, a digital camera. Uh, but, but in a firm that's an established firm like that, well, they have to have a committee to determine which digital camera we're going to buy. That takes six months. At the end of six months, there's a new digital camera that's got seven more pixels available, right? Or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's a never-ending thing. So I went on my own. I, I bought a digital camera, the cheapest one that I could get because I figured I was going to throw it away anyway. I would go out to sites and take pictures and you know started incorporating all this. The other thing that happened was um, I saw um, every firm that, had, that I worked for had um, a, a full-time computer technician on the staff. You know, they were all DOS and then Windows-based based systems. And um, I had a friend who was a graphic designer, and, and he said, uh, you need to use a Mac. And I was like, Macs are toys, aren't they? And he said, no, 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 come look at my computer. So I looked at his Mac, and he turned it on. And I said, well, okay, but when do I type in after that colon and the backslash? And he said, nothing. And he said, you just turn it on, and there's <laughs> and, and now this sounds awfully stupid now. but So we, we were kind of totally against the grain um, using Mac computers because people, our architects were just dropping from Mac like flies 20 years ago. I mean, that was the end of AutoCAD with Mac, with Apple. And uh, I, I sent emails and letters to Autodesk, asked them to make a Mac version of AutoCAD. And um, 
what I found was there was a company right here in Columbia, Maryland, uh, a Towson University, Johns Hopkins University graduate. So very local guy started a company called Minicad. And um, the uh, Minicad was, uh, the, was the product that a large development company in Maryland used that I had worked with as another firm. They used, all the product managers used it. They've since been, been uh, renamed Vectorworks. Mm. So uh, what was nice was that they were 15 miles away. Um, we didn't have to go to uh, the Northwest or somewhere abroad to get expertise on our computers. computers. They were right there. They could come right into the office and give us information. And I like the idea that it was local. It's a local company and local people. So we've been using Minicad and Vectorworks consistently. Now that's our, our, BIM, our BIM software. Yeah, Vectorworks is a pretty robust BIM application. Right. What do you think about it? Give me your feedback and your thoughts on that. I mean, I'm I'm biased because I kind of go back with it all the way back to the original, you know, MiniCAD MiniCAD version. But um, I've used AutoCAD in the past, but I think um, I think all these things are changing. I think it's all going to change some more. I think we're gonna we're gonna be looking for. Um, I think something like Grasshopper. Have you are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. um, I think software that allows us to go from the construction of the three dimensional thing. I think we're going to be eliminating construction documents in in the near future. I think that's all going to change. So that's why yeah. I think people who get spend too much time being too pumped up about whether it's this or that. I mean, just learn how to do it and learn yep. what's coming next. Because yep. I mean, uh, one thing you know is it changes. It's going to change. It's going to change. So yeah. Vectorworks, I think, is a good product. Hopefully, they'll they'll uh, keep moving with the times. How how's um, how's the use of that yeah. program affected your practice? Uh, what you guys it, do? All of our consultants use Autodesk, mm -hmm. so we inter interchange very well. So we don't have any issues with it. Um, we 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 have to learn what they need. Um, you know, we we get uh, better results from our engineers when we're sensitive to what we give them. So we we want to be sensitive to the product we give them as much as the product we get back. Yep. yep. So as long as we work that out, if we work with someone new, we do the same thing. Randy, you mentioned something earlier uh, when you were talking about some of the systems you set up in your early practice. You talked about how you had, you know, forms and a methodology for determining what you're going to do for a proposal. Could you just take us through, for our listeners who this may be new to them, could you take us through like the conceptual framework of how you would figure out how much you're going to charge for a project and do a proposal? Sure. Um, well, what I did was, which is maybe, you know, convoluted, but, but I was in the first couple of projects, especially a commercial project, I was looking at it. If I had to give a, a competitive proposal against an established firm, I thought, okay, I'm not just one person. I'm a firm because I can't, I can't charge uh, the principal rate for uh, putting paper clips onto, a, onto the documents or stapling. You know, so where is it? So what am I doing in all of these things and how does that work? And so I, I developed immediately, right from the very beginning, I had categories for, for, for uh, job descriptions even though I was only one person. So that, okay, if I hire someone tomorrow, this is what I'm going to be able to pay them, this is what I'll bill for them, and this is what they'll do. So in that way, I guess I was organized because I thought about it in, in those terms. Um, yeah. Nice. That's, that's um, a good and, framework. And, and I, think, I think that's the one thing is kind of don't picture where you are, but picture where you want to be and then make it, make it happen right away. Uh, because then when I started to hire people, it you know, became you know, an easy fit to fit in. 
Yeah. Hiring the first person is very difficult. It's a very difficult thing. You know, you start thinking, now I am, I'm a parent now. I have another family that I'm responsible for. But, um, but I think having people come in, it usually takes some of the workload off of you and you get a lot more done when you have the right people. One thing I also wanted to let you know about was, um, I just remembered, um, you know, I said that sort of things kind of, projects kind of happened that I didn't even realize they were going to become where they were coming from. They kind of came from different places. There's a, a business, uh, you might use the word guru, a business uh, consultant, um, a guy named Tom Peters. And if you haven't heard of him, uh, you should. He's a Cornell guy. So you, you, you'd have a connection. And he wrote uh, In Search of Excellence, uh, The Pursuit of Wow, um, what else did he write? Um, Thriving on Chaos. He wrote a lot of books about, about business and succeeding in business. And one of the things I remembered when I was an employee was if you're working for a, fr- a firm, you're a young architect listening to this show, um, and I know from my own experience working at a big firm that there's a lot of gregariousness that people go out and have lunch together. And I know there's a lot of boys clubs in a lot of firms. Don't leave the ladies out. Don't leave the women out. Okay? But because there, there's this boys club thing, and sometimes in big firms. But, but the thing is, don't also, don't just have lunch with your coworkers. Have lunch with your clients. Have lunch with your competitors. Have lunch with somebody that does something totally totally different. Have lunch with a lawyer. Have lunch with a banker. Have lunch with anybody else other than your coworkers. You can have those lunches with your coworkers once a week, but five days every day. The only people that know how great you are are those people that you work with. So when things happen, promotions or layoffs, you know, positive side or the negative side, your boss is going to look at you and he's going to say, "What is the value this person has?" So. Have they have they gotten calls from other clients of what a great person this is, or you know how many people do you know? What is your connection? What's your network? If you have to leave, also if you want to leave and go on your own, who do you know? What are all your resources? So all those people you have lunch with, that's an incredibly valuable time, and that's a Tom Peters, um, you know, advice right out right out of there, which I did. You know, I did a lot of that, probably not enough, but it did make sense because people started to contact me. I didn't realize. That you know that I already had a reputation coming out. Yeah, powerful strategy. Never, never yeah. underestimate the power of just a lunch. Exactly, and and it, and I think people as employees they like to go out and talk about work. Don't go out and talk about work and gripe. Go out and talk about other things. And that's a wrap for another show about the business of architecture. To get more resources about how you, as an architect, can run a rewarding business that is both fun, flexible, and profitable, visit businessofarchitecture.com and click the Join button to claim your free account to Business of Architecture Insider. As a member, you'll have access to free tools and resources to help you get more clients, start a new firm, and much more. You'll also get access to my book, Social Media for Architects, where you'll learn how to use internet tools for fun and for profit. Until next week, this has been The Business of Architecture. views expressed on the show by my guests do not represent those of the host and I make no representation, promise, guarantee, pledge, warranty, contract, bond, or commitment except to help you conquer the world. Bump music credit to Ben Folds 5, Do It Anyway.